0: Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23. We come to the end of the chapter. And I want to review and recap the chapter because some of us may have been here, not here. Uh, but just to get uh, into memory, walk down memory lane and see what we have done in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, the Apostle Paul outlined for us the believers' resources in Christ. He told us that we are who we are and what we possess in Christ. And in response to this, Paul said he was so ecstatic about it that he said, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you notice verse 3, he says, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Paul uses the past tense here. Paul states it's a done deal. You have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. Now, what are the blessings that we have been blessed with? Well, Romans chapter 5, verse 5 reads, The love of God has been poured out into our hearts. John chapter 14, verse 27, we read, That the peace of God has been given to us, and we've been given this peace not as the world gives it, John chapter 15 verse 11 says, I have spoken to you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13, we read, we have the strength we need to live our Christian life. He says, I can do all things to Christ, but strengthens me. James chapter 1 verse 5, we read, if we lack wisdom... Ask for it and God will give it to you. So God has given us love. He's given us peace. He's given us joy. He has given us strength. He's given us wisdom. But we keep asking for these things. And all these things have been given to us. We have an abundant supply of all these blessings. Where are these blessings? Verse 3 reads that these resources are in the heavenly places. It is in the domain of our Father. Although physically we are living in the here and the now, we belong to the heavenly places. That's where our citizenship is. And when we come to know Jesus Christ, we become joined heirs with Christ Jesus. And when we become joined heirs with Christ, God dispenses all the blessings that belong to Christ to us, it's transmitted to us. Peter in 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 4, he says, he, we have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. He says, kept in heaven for you. Everything that Christ will receive, we will receive. Paul continues to elaborate on these blessings and the work of God and our salvation from verses 4 all the way through verse 14. In verses 4 through 6, we see the truth about election. Election is the cause and the source of all our benefits. God has sovereignly chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. God did not choose us because we were adorable creatures, or that God couldn't just wait to get His hands on us because we were adorable creatures. No, the Bible states we were God-haters. We were rebellious to the core, to the nth degree. Our election was due to... Nothing in us, it was all of God, who before the world began, set his love upon us. We were chosen in him. That's God's sovereign election. Then in verses 7 through 11, Paul elaborates on the work of redemption. Paul begins verse 7 with the words, In him, we have redemption. Not in us, not in anything else. In him, in Christ, we have redemption. In ourselves, we are unworthy. We are rebellious, we are hard-hearted, we are greedy, we are darkened in our understanding. We have no desire for God, nada. We are groping in darkness. The Bible states we were strangers with no hope, without God, enslaved to Satan. But God, who is rich in mercy, Ephesians chapter 2, because of his great love, Christ died for us on the cross. He redeemed us. And the ones he redeemed... Were the ones whom God chose from the foundation of the world. Christ poured out his blood for his people. Christ becomes our substitute. He freed us from the guilt of sin, the condemnation of sin, the power of sin, the penalty of sin. And someday he will even free us from the presence of sin. When we'll be in his presence, we'll see him face to face. So his death provided us the forgiveness. His death provided us uh, uh, the, the forgiveness from past, present and future sins. Not only did he forgive us our sins. We go on to read there that he gave us spiritual understanding. He has given us wisdom to live out this redemption in this world. And this marvelous work of redemption in our lives. So that one day he will bring all believers together in the millennial kingdom. When everything in this universe will be united under Christ. Move on to verses 12 through 14. We find Paul continues with the ministry of the third person of the Trinity. He talks about the inheritance of God in Christ Jesus to all who are redeemed. We are God's, uh, Christ's inheritance, and, and in turn, Christ is our inheritance. And as a guarantee of that inheritance, we have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. And these truths were so personal to Paul, to the Apostle Paul, that he was so ecstatic, as I said, that he couldn't contain himself. That he wrote in verse 3, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Now as Paul expounded these verses from verses 4 through 14, he realized these truths are, are difficult truths. They need to be comprehended by the human mind, and they cannot be comprehended by the human mind unless and until the Holy Spirit enables them. So Paul goes on into the next verses, from verse 15 all the way through 23, to pray for his people. Saying, God, now that I've explained these truths, you do the work of bringing illumination into their hearts and minds. That's what we all need to do, right? After we teach someone, we pray that God would do His work of teaching, His illumination in the lives of people that we have taught. So He begins in verses fifteen and sixteen. He lets the people know that He's praying for them. That's a great place to start. That means you got to be praying. That means you got to take time. You can't just say, "I'm praying for you," and that's a hard thing. I mean, I, I can't. I. I it's hard. You know, when, when people come to you and they say, please pray for me. And you say, I'll be praying for you. Or you send an email across saying, I'm praying for you. Really? Are you really praying for them? If, if you are not used to doing that, if someone comes to you and say, pray for me, say, wait, brother, let me do it right now. Pray for them right now. Or then make it a point, because it's got to be part of your life. Where you go home and you remember these people. And you pray for them individually. And Paul does that. Then in verses 17 through 23, he lets the readers know that he's praying for them. And he goes through the petitions of the prayer as he's going from verses 17 to 23. In fact, in in verse 17 and 18, we see the first petition. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom. And of revelation, in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's the first petition right there. Paul is praying, Oh God, let them know in their mind how much they possess Christ. Give them a rich, deep understanding of the things of God. Enlighten in the eyes of their heart that they would be able to apply these truths into their minds, into their lives. Drive these truths, jab these truths deep into their lives that they would go home and practice them. You already know what you ought to be praying for for one another, right? You can do that right today, even as you're sitting here. Lord, I pray that the sermon that is being proclaimed, Lord, you do the work in my life and in the works of people around me. That they would not just hear it, but they would go home. Not be the one who just looks into the mirror and walks away, but be the one who, who stoops down and looks deep into the mirror and wants to correct himself because of the work that you do in their lives. It's an ongoing prayer, and we all ought to be doing that. and lighten the eyes of their hearts. Having prayed that, God would help these people understand the greatness of the hope of his calling, Paul goes on into verses 19 through 23. And this is our section today. Are you there? In your Bibles, verses 19 to 23. Let me read that section. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might? Verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. And above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And what did he do? He put all things under his feet and gave him as the head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of Him fulfills all in all. And I have three truths for you this morning. The first one is found in verses 19 through 20a. Do you know God's mighty power? The second truth is found in verses 20b through 22. Do you know that Christ is the head of the church? Verse 23 is the third point. Do you represent Christ well in the church? Let's look at verses 19 and 20. Do you know God's mighty power? We know we will not be able to know God's mighty power unless God opens the eyes of our understanding. Here in verse 19, the apostle Paul is not praying that they should have more power but that they may come to know the greatness of the power of God that's already working in them. We know from beginning to the end, from the time of our salvation, from the time we came to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have the power of God. The whole of our Christian life, from, from the point of being born again, to the point of our glorification, is a result of the work of God's power in us. We cannot become a Christian without the mighty working of the power of God. We cannot continue to be a Christian without the mighty working of the power of God in our life sustaining us. And Paul is referring here to that mighty power. And then he goes on to say in verse 19. Are you there with me? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power power or great might. Now here he talks about the power that is given to us who believe in verse 19. That means it is for believers. As believers, we have the power of God that's at work in us. And we know that if it is not for the power of God, again reiterating it, we would never become believers in the first place. In order to understand that statement, you and I need to understand the significance of our conversion. And what is it? We know if you turn a, a few lines down in Ephesians chapter 2, and we will be there next week, but take a peek there in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. It says, you are dead. Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. The power of air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is who we were, fallen people, darkened in our mind, in our understanding as a result of sin. We do not understand, we do not heed the gospel message. And as fallen people, we stifle the truth of God. We argue against the truth of God's word. We invent arguments after arguments. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, Your heart is deceitful beyond everything else. Desperately wicked. The Bible says in John chapter 3 verse 19, that men loved darkness rather than light. Because why? Because their deeds were evil. Blind to the truth, heart is hardened, spirit is dead. All of our faculties dead. Totally devoid of any desire for change. Devastating effect of the fall. This is why we cannot be regenerated. It has to be the greatest miracle that happened on planet earth. We cannot be regenerated unless and until we were aided by the power of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Jeremiah chapter 13? Verse twenty three It says Can the Ethiopian change his skin color? Can the leopard change its spots? Neither can you do good for accustomed to doing what? Evil. First Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14 reads, The natural man does not understand, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. In light of these evidence that I have provided for you, fallen man will not believe the gospel, even if he decides to do so. You can give him the best arguments in the world. You can give him the best philosophical arguments in the world. And you can try to reach his intellect. And try to give him arguments. To support the, the point that there is a God. But no man on planet earth. Unaided. But the power of God. Will ever decide or understand. The truth of God's word. God's word brings about regeneration. Regeneration. In the heart of man, not philosophy, not some great arguments, nothing but God's word. And it is to such people that the gospel message comes with the truth of God's word, to forsake sin, to forsake the world, to follow Christ. It's a miracle of regeneration by the power of God. Are we aware that we are who we are because of the mighty power of God at work in us? That we are full of we are solely by the grace and the power of God. Do we live in the light of these truths? Let's look at the next phrase in verse 20a. It says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul now elaborates on this great power. He wants us to know the intensity or the greatness of this power. Paul says this is the same power that worked in Christ. I'll put it in different words. The power that worked in Christ and raised Him from the dead is the power that is at work in you and me. Folks, when we think about Christ, His incarnation. His death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. Do we realize the strength of God's power that is at work in each of these events? Do we? He was brought to earth as a baby. It was a supernatural event in which there was no human influence. Mary was found to be with a child. Luke chapter 1 verse 35 reads, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Defies all medical possibilities. How else could be if not for the power of God, the mighty power of God? King Herod He tried to kill the child, but the power of God sustained it. power of God protected the child. He was crucified on the cross, but the power of God did not keep him in the grave. He was raised from the dead. He was exalted to a high position where he seated at the right hand of God. He is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Unbelievable power at work in the life of the Messiah. Paul, a master of words, he was trying to find every single word in the Greek language to reflect power to explain this. It has been given to us. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us. We don't have to look anywhere else. We don't have to try to find it in the bushes. It's there available for us. We have this power. And Paul wanted us to know this, that we have this resurrection power at work in our lives. Do you remember a passage in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10? You will will, if I tell you what it is. That I may know him. Remember that? And the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is what Paul wanted wanted to know. A lifelong process. It's a process we should be growing into. That I may know the power of his resurrection. Do you know this power? Do you know this mighty power of God that is at work in your life? It's at work in your life right now. It gives you all the strength you need to live your Christian life. It's available. You just need to tap into it. You don't have to sit and pray, Lord, give me this power, fill me this, fill me with this power, fill me with this power. If you've been saved, children of God, beloved, if you've been saved, you have this power because it was this power that made you sit here. Otherwise, you would never be here. Well, other than the fact that you're being forced to come here by your parents or not, I don't know what it is. But if you're sitting here, because you are a believer, you are sitting here because of the power of God at work in your heart. The second truth I want you to look at is found in verses 20b all the way through 22 well, Paul prays that we may know that Christ is the head of the church. And we ought to know that, actually. Sometimes we don't. We at least don't act that way. People don't, I mean, people just play church. Church, Christ is the head of the church. It's not the Pope, it's, it's not the priest, it's not the pastor, it's not the elders. It's not some council. Christ is the head of the church. And if Christ is the head of the church, you go to Christ to know how to lead the church. You say, how do I go to Christ? Well, the living word of God tells you what Christ wants you to know. He's the one who will build the church. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, many people don't know that. That's why they try all these things. They have these attractive banners outside the churches. They have all these programs out there trying to gain more people into the church. Somehow thinking that they could do all these things and attract a large flock into the church. Throw some pizzas out there. Throw some climbing walls. And and eventually people will all come. They'll be attracted to this fun, fantastic, whatever you want to call it. And then slowly you will just slide the gospel in. Really don't. They'll get saved and they'll keep you keep them in the church that's not that's a worldly way of doing it Christ said I will build my church and the way he will build the church is through the gospel proclamation of God's word nothing else the only way I can keep you in this church I can't God can it's when God saves you and then you'll be drawn to biblical preaching you'll be drawn to biblical preaching And as you're drawn to biblical preaching, you will want to sit under godly preaching, under biblical preaching, wherever that is. Okay, coming back to the point, Christ is the head of the church. I took a rabbit trail there. In the next couple of days, we will be celebrating something called Reformation Day. You say, Pastor, what is that? Well, yes. The Reformation that took place on October the 31st, 1517, 500 years ago approximately. Martin Luther, brother Martin Luther, a monk, a scholar, struggled for years with the Catholic church, the church in Rome. He had been greatly disturbed by an unparalleled indulgence that was taking place in Rome, indulgence and the sale of indulgences. And also the question was, who is the head of the church? Is Pope the head of the church or is it Christ who is the head of the church? And the Reformation laid this question down for all, once and for all, it laid it to rest. And the answer was, Christ alone is the head of the church. Well, it was not a new truth. Why? Because the Apostle Paul affirmed this in the Bible, in AD in the book of Ephesians, that Christ is the head of the church. So we begin in verse 20b, it says, It says, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Knock, knock, are you there? Okay, and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. The Apostle Paul says that not only did God raise him from the dead, he was seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. He was given a place at the right hand. We read in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 13, It says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, That Christ was seated at the right hand of God. No one is ever given a position in the heavenly places, Neither man nor angels. This place is reserved only for Christ. God not only gave Christ the place of honor, but He also gave Him the place of authority. And we read that in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, where it says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So Paul continues in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21. Follow along with me in verse 21. He says, far above." All rule, and authority, and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Paul is piling words over words. He says, rule, authority, power, and dominion. So the question is, what rule, authority, power, or dominion is he referring to? Is he alluding to fallen angels? Or is he referring to good angels? Paul states here that Christ has been placed in a position of authority and honor, which is far above all powers. That means the Son of God is far above any angel. The superiority of Christ. We see that in Hebrews chapter 1. That Christ is elevated. He's exalted far above all principalities and powers. He's far above. And when you see he's far above, that means he's exceedingly above all rule, power, authority. That means he's sovereign. He has supreme authority. He's exponentially far above all authority. That's what it says. Look at verse 21 again. It says, above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. And then he goes on to say, and about every name that is named. He says, Whether it be kings, governors, judges, prime ministers, presidents, United Nations, regardless of what you are, everyone else in this world is inferior to Christ. Christ is above every name. Isn't that what we read in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That in the name of Jesus, everyone should bow down. Jesus Christ is the name that is the highest name. Not only in heaven, but among all earthly powers as well. Continue looking with me in verse 21, please. So, above every name that is named, not only in this age, do you see that phrase? But also in the one to come. Meaning Christ is far above all rule and authority. And this position is forever, not only in this present age, but also in the future age. The future messianic kingdom in the time to come. It is that Christ will rule with justice and put down all powers and authority that oppose him. He is sovereign. He has no term limits. He will rule forever and ever. Let's keep going. Verse 22. And he put all things. You don't have to study all things. It means what? All things. He put all things. Where? Under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church. All things were put under subjection to Christ. In order to know this. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1. When man was created, do you remember that he was given dominion over all things? Yeah? But was he able to keep it? He lost it at the fall. And since then, we've been trying to get all dominion. It's not at all possible. In fact, the curse was in Genesis chapter 3, right? What is it? The woman will try to get dominion over the man. I mean, here is the process that everything is trying to get dominion. Ultimately, there's here the new Adam in Christ who has been given complete dominion over everything that has been created. And that will happen at that day when Christ will be completely in charge in the millennial kingdom and the eternal state. Christ, the second Adam, will be made head over all things. He'll control all things. he controls the stars, the courses. Everything is in His hands. Even right now. As someone said, God the Father has lined up everything under the supreme authority of God the Father. God the Son, I'm sorry, not God the Father. It was R.C. Sproul who said, There is one square inch, there is no one square inch of maverick molecule in the entire universe that does not exist to do Christ's bidding. There is no authority outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means. Everything is under His control, under His supremacy. And then verse 22 continues to say that Christ is made head over all things to the church meaning is the ruler Christ is a source from which all power comes down all power flows he is the ruler Christ is the head of the church having seen god's mighty power having seen that Christ is the head of the church now we come to the third truth and the third truth is found in verse 23 And the third truth is, do you represent Christ well in the church? Let's read verse 23. It says, which is his body? The fullness of him fulfills all in all. Let's look at the first phrase in verse 23, which is his body? So Christ is the ruling head of the body. And we see this metaphor of the church used by the Apostle Paul as the body of Christ. And Paul was the only New Testament author to use this metaphor. That Christ is the head of the body and this body is the church. And as individuals, we are all part and parcel of the body of Christ. Christ is the head and we are the body. Colossians chapter 1. Verses 15 through 18, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, full Christ, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, that is through Christ, all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things were created through Christ and for Christ. Verse 17, and he, that is Christ, is before all things, and in Christ all things hold together. Verse 18, and he, that is Christ, is what? The head of the body. And who is the head of the body? The church. The body is a metaphor for church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Christ is the originator, Christ is the sustainer, and Christ is the head over everything in the church. We read that in Ephesians chapter 5, 23 and 24, that Christ is the head of the church, His body, and He's Himself its Savior. Let me explain to you what this means. You know the story of Paul, that he was on the way to Damascus. Why was he on the way to Damascus? To get anyone who said they were Christians. To capture them and bring them down and kill them. Stephen was a martyr. Basically under Paul. Because he believed in Christ. And so Paul is going with his agenda and he's on the way to Damascus. As he's on the way to Damascus, a light shone from heaven. And there was a voice that came out. And you can read all about it in in Acts chapter 9 verse 1. And so let me read that for you. It says, Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if anyone found belonging to the way, that is Christian, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And verse 3 says, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Speak to me. Me. Did he say the church? He said, Why are you persecuting? You know what Jesus is saying? Saul, you are persecuting what? The church. But as you are persecuting the church, you're persecuting. Me. Why? Because I am the head of the body, which is the church. Does that make sense? Your response, your attitude to the body of Christ is your attitude to Christ. How do you treat the body of Christ? Do you consider the body of Christ as the bride of Christ? Is Christ your priority? Is this church your priority? Are you sacrificing yourself for the bride of Christ? Do you sacrifice your time, your finances, your priorities for the bride of Christ? How do you treat other members within the body of Christ? I mean, you and I are believers. And as believers, we are part and parcel of the body of Christ. We are joined to Christ. Think about your body. You have a head, your hands, your fingers, arms, fingers. You have your legs, your feet. They're all part of your body. And they all become an essential unity. They're joined together. They are one living, organic unity. Do you just casually don't take care of your hands? Do you not take care of your feet? Or do you just let them be there, thinking they're just separated, anonymous entities? Or do you take care of every single part of your body? Do you? That's how the church is. We are all seated here. Some of you are the hands, some of you are the arms, some of you are the feet. Some of you the legs. But overall, who's the head? Christ. We are an offshoot of Christ. We come out of him. He is the source and center of our life. And, and that's what we read here in verse 23, which is his body. Let's go on. Verse 23 continues to read. And I want to take some time here. This is extremely important. I want you to understand this the fullness of him fulfills all in all so here Paul is trying to say that Christ is the head and we are his body but he continues to state this difficult phrase that has taken a lot of ink and many commentaries it's the phrase the fullness of him fulfills all in all and I want to make it simplified for you so that you'll be able to understand what it means This phrase can be interpreted two ways. There's one of those places where you say, well, there can be two interpretations. Yes, because I always teach there's one interpretation, many applications, right? But here, this is one of those places where you have two interpretations. How do you deal with this? The first interpretation is that the church, which is his body, is the fullness of him that fills all in all. Meaning Jesus Christ fills the church. Is that clear? Jesus Christ fills the church. He'll say, explain to me more. Yes, I'll explain to you. As God dwelt in the temple in the Old Testament and filled it with His glory, so Christ now dwells in the church and fills it with His glory. That's the first interpretation. Is that clear? Church is filling the church. I mean, Christ is filling the church. An example of that is in Colossians 1.19 and Colossians 2.9 where we see the whole of fullness of Deity is found in Christ, meaning Christ is the fullness of the Father. Christ, the Deity, dwells in Christ. That's the first interpretation. Jesus Christ fills the church. Let me come to the second interpretation. Are you there? The second interpretation. And that is the church is the fullness of fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Or that the church fills Christ and completes him. Meaning Christ is not full. We as a body become the fulfillment of the Son of God. Now hang in there. Let me come back. The first interpretation, Christ fills the church. The second interpretation, the church completes Christ. Is that clear? Okay. The way we come to this interpretation is based on the word fullness. Go back to your Bible in verse 23. The fullness of him. The word fullness can be taken as a passive voice or it can be taken as an active voice. Passive is the ball hit me. Active voice, I threw the ball that's active voice. So when you look here, depending on the way you take the word fullness, whether you take it as passive or whether you take it as active. If you take it as passive, then we come to the interpretation, that's the first one, church fills or fills, I mean sorry, Christ fills the church, or the church is filled or completed by Christ. But if you take it instead as an active voice, then the meaning would be that church, in some sense, completes Christ. Is that clear? Now, before we go into this further, I want to explain something here. Jesus Christ is eternal Son of God. He's self-sufficient, He's transcendent, He's outside us, He's beyond us. He is not in any need of us to somehow complete his deity or to somehow make him complete. He is totally sufficient in and of himself. So when we talk over the church being the fullness of Christ, we are not talking about somehow adding to his divine nature, that somehow something is missing in him and the church comes along and fulfills all that and completes Christ. No, he's complete in himself. He is. He's God, Right? He is divine. There is nothing that needs to complete him. He is divine. But what we are saying here is that, listen guys, Christ is the head of the church. The church is the body. And just like your body, if you have a head and you don't have the hands and the rest of your things, your head is not complete. Does that make sense? In the same way, let me give you another example. As a king, you call he's a king, but a king has no kingdom. What is the use of him being a king? Uh, A shepherd. He's a shepherd, but where are his sheep? The sheep complete the shepherd. Does that make sense? So when we think of Christ, you're saying that yes, the church is in some sense completing Christ. And then he goes on into the next phrase, he says fulfills all in all. Meaning Christ fills all things with his sovereignty, his rule and his power. He is completely sovereign, he is completely God, he is divine. Paul had to put it in there because when he said, which is his body, the fullness of him, he didn't want to le- let the reader come walk away saying, oh, now somehow the church is completing Christ, so Christ is insufficient in and of himself. No. Paul says, well, the Christ completes him in the sense that Christ, the church is the body of, the, of, 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 of Christ, but ultimately he is filling all in all. What do we walk away from this with? Let me pull back here and kind of go back to an understanding of the church. When you and I become believers, we all become part and parcel of the universal church of Christ. That's the invisible body. The moment you become a believer, you become part of that invisible body of Christ. But then you and I are also to become a part and parcel of the local body, the visible body, the tangible body that the world can look at and say, well, that's what a church is. Otherwise, you say, I'm a Christian. Where do you go to church? Because the world wants to know what is the tangible place that you associate yourselves with. Where do you practice your one another's, right? You're sitting here because you want to practice your one another's. This is, you're sitting here because you want to love one another. You associate yourselves with the local body. And so when you say the third point, when you look at the third point, do we reflect Christ well in the church? You need to understand that when Christ is looking at the church, he looks at the church as somehow completing him. You and I as individuals complete Christ. How do you live your life in this church? If people were to look at your lives, do you see them? Do they see you as completing that body relationship? Do, you, do they see you as living our lives For the glory of God? Do they see you as loving one another? Do they see you as living your life in purity of that relationship? Do you see, do they see you as living your life in this body in such a way that you're not tarnishing this body? Do you reflect Christ well in this body? making sense of the fact that you are completing Christ, that you are the fullness of him who fills all in all. Three points. Do you know the mighty power of God? Do you know Christ is the head of the church? And do you reflect Christ well in this body? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are our sovereign God, these truths that we just read, no doubt cannot, can be understood without, we cannot understand them without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, help us, Father, even as we go from here, that we would continue to be good stewards of the Word of God, to study your Word, to learn your Word, to go back and check as to what we heard is right or not, to study Scriptures, to be men and women committed to the love of God's Word, that in turn, We would know the power of God, that we would know Christ as the head of the church, and we would do our church with you as the head, and that we would realize that we are the fullness of Christ as a body, and that we would reflect our lives well in this body. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.